0: Welcome to another Infographic Instant with Brian Michael. This infographic instant looks at the presentation that I'll be making at the Finance Malta conference entitled Regulation and Malta as an International Financial Services Centre. Before starting the presentation, the usual disclaimers apply and special thanks to the Hong Kong Research Grants Council theme-based research scheme for supporting this research. Now, where are we as an IFC, we being Malta but also the other IFCs? We know that International Financial Centre Economics work on a power scale. And you can see a demonstration of this power scale in Figure 2.2a to the right hand side of the slide of this power law in action. We see uh, looking at the value of total assets placed in portfolio investments in each jurisdiction the U.S., and to a lesser extent UK, they attract a large amount of funding, but orders of magnitude higher than their their closest peers. So we see places like Hong Kong and Singapore, even though they are still ranked in the top, having maybe a third less assets than the pole position rank. And looking further down the list of international financial centers, As you see in the graphic right below that graph, the amount of portfolio investment in these jurisdictions is absolutely dwarfed by investments in the U.S. and the U.K. And we know that in order for even third, fourth, fifth place jurisdictions to catch up, they would need to significantly restructure the way their financial centers work. So simply tinkering at the margins won't accomplish their task. Now we know that Malta ranks 71st place according to the YZN rankings, and naturally the question that policymakers on the island, as well as policymakers in the other IFCs ask is, what can we do to join the ranks of Hong Kong, Singapore, London, and New York? Now, of course, there's two different views on the subject, but that view has a commonality that better bank regulation would result in better IFC scores. Now, of course, better is in the eye of the beholder because for some, better regulation means less regulation, whereas in better regulation to others means more regulation. And we can see in the third graphic that you see on the slide that a number of jurisdictions have Increased their restrictiveness in order to try and create a more safe and secure Bank regulatory structure in order hopefully to attract and keep funds in their banks Now what is the problem with the bank-centered view of IFC development? If you look at some of the research reports that are given to London, New York, Moscow, Istanbul you see that the advice is focused on improving banks, making costs lower, implementing new technologies, making the quality of life better in the city so that knowledge workers will come and work on mergers and acquisitions and so forth. But the problem with this view of the International Financial Center is that they're putting the cart before the horse. Or to draw an analogy from the pop movie Matrix, is that they're trying to bend this proverbial spoon, which is the banking sector, instead of bending the environment in which that banking sector works. In other words, the best way to improve the financial sector is actually not to focus on the banking sector itself don't quote-unquote bend the banks and their regulation. Instead, bend the way that those banks target customers, the way those banks create value for depositors, for companies looking to merge with other companies across borders, and so forth. It's certainly true that it's regulations that determine the focus of a financial center as well as the competitiveness in various sectors. Looking at the infographic you see at the bottom right hand side of the slide we see what in the paper we refer to as bulge bracket banks and their focus on various sectors as opposed to what we call big law uh, advisors. And we see almost no preference in these advisory relationships for different kinds of sectors. So is it regulation which is preventing a lack of specialization? Is it something technological? Or is the optimal regulatory response not to build competitive advantages in certain sectors among financial service firms? Now this is kind of abstract talking about bending spoons. Let's look at some practical examples to see how to organize a financial services regulatory structure in practice. The first example treats uh, the finance of solar companies in China. Now we know that uh, Chinese solar companies will represent a sunrise industry. It's a new technology which needs a large amount of financing of capital and that capital promises to create new industries and new economic structures which in theory will pay very rich dividends to the financial service firms that are providing money for solar investment. So on the uh, graphic you see in the upper left hand corner we map out some of the installed solar capacity in China not even looking at the future potential capacity and to the right of that map of China, you see the estimated financing needs uh, using various financial instruments uh, preferred stocks, common stocks, uh, subordinated debts, commercial paper, um, equity-linked derivatives, and so forth. You see the estimated value of uh, assets securitized, written up, if you will, in these various ways. At how can the regulator, in Hong Kong's case, the Securities and Futures Commission, how can they reorganize the securities ordinance in order to encourage investment in China's solar industry, of course, without jeopardizing the stability of Hong Kong's banking sector? Looking at the outline of the what we've termed the Sunrise Industries Code in the paper, You see several sections looking at uh, the creation of information portals, uh, specifically crowdfunding portals looking at attracting resources into solar-type investments. Now notice that it is first looking at that future industry and then thinking, well, how can financial law help facilitate the bringing of savings to investing in these solar panel companies? What we are not doing is we are not looking at Financial Stability Board codes and we're not looking at best practices about how to regulate banks. So just like we were talking about not bending the spoon, you have to bend the environment, the point is not current regulations affecting banks, you have to look at the overall structure To that end, lawyers need to have a Kotler-like view of marketing. Of course, uh, referring to Philip Kotler, who is the the father of modern marketing and has taught us that the way to think about marketing is to look first at the customer and then think about what the company needs to do, rather than traditionally at the time thinking the other way around about, well, what do we do and then how do we sell it? So we know that, that Now, law is a very specific discipline, and in the law school you certainly won't be exposed to marketing, but taking a multidisciplinary approach means that we don't silo our understanding of the various disciplines. Lawyers have to have this mindset of thinking about the entire system and thinking about the marketing or the identification of wants and customers' needs and fulfilling those needs at a profit, of the financial services sector. And to do that we almost have to see law like Michael Hammer in his famous books about uh, reorganizing and starting from a blank sheet of paper. We almost have to see law uh, organizations from the tabula rasa and seeing well how do we organize our financial law in the best way that facilitates solar type transactions. To drive the point home that legal structure follows strategy, let's look at another example from the paper. In the upper left-hand corner, we see a different examples of solar investments uh, and offering of those investments through a portal, which is available on the internet, showing the type of solar assets and various attributes of those assets. And In Hong Kong, as an international financial center, We say we want to have an environment conducive to the creation of these kinds of portals uh, following the Mosaic example because when we have these types of portals, investors will come, they'll give their money, we can invest in uh, very productive investments on the mainland, and therefore develop Hong Kong as an international financial center. Now to do that, we step back and we think, well, what's in the financial law needs to facilitate that? so we're looking first at the industry and then we think about the financial law and in the slide you see in front of you figure 52 uh, we provide a quote-unquote for dummies or very simplified representation of the type of regulatory instrument that can be adopted here in Hong Kong in order to bring about these kinds of information portals now in this case a lot of these provisions simply copy uh, US law Uh, Mosaic is based in the US US law has facilitated this type of relationship so we've seen something from another jurisdiction and we mold our law in the International Financial Center in order to achieve that objective now of course you're saying well that that's great but Stability is also one of the key attributes of financial services. If the banking sector is particularly susceptible to shocks, then it doesn't do us any good because we're going to lose all those assets anyway during the next crisis. Hong Kong's International Financial Center, of course, is relatively exposed to a China-origin economic or financial crisis. China relies very heavily both on the portfolio side as well as on the trade side and uh, so to illustrate this you see the 1980s legends China crisis which I thought was kind of amusing uh, as representing this China crisis which you can read about in our paper now there's usual approaches which are taken to thinking about foreign origin large-scale shocks uh, affecting a banking sector And there's usual approaches to thinking about the ways of reducing the potential impact of those shocks. Those approaches include stress testing, uh, flavors of buffering, and what I mean by buffering is providing capital buffers within the banks, or providing buffers outside the banks, such as in exchanges or even within the government, in order to provide liquidity in case of some kind of crisis. Uh, Also, we think about pre- and post-resolution regimes, and what that means is, well, if the bank goes bankrupt, what do we do? So, pre-resolution thinks about the actions to take, including perhaps government takeover of the bank in case it looks like it's going to quote-unquote die. Uh, Post-resolution then looks at what to do with the bank when it is being wound up. The fourth approach looks at what, what I call s based compliance measures. And S&M as refers to sadomasochistic. Sadomasochistic in the regard that regulators have overreacted to previous crises, and therefore they are imposing an excessive amount of regulations. These restrictions, of course, are necessary. Um, looking at figure 3.5 on the slide in front of you, we show some of the estimated impacts of a large-scale China origin crisis through several channels. We also look at the black swan event, where the crisis transmits to Hong Kong through various channels simultaneously. And in fact, because of the way these shocks are transmitted, they actually amplify each other. And if that were the case, the bottom graphic shows the estimated effect on uh, financial system deposits as a proportion of GDP in Hong Kong typical way of thinking about this is to say, well, let's focus on the usual approaches. Let's focus on strengthening the banking sector. And of course, you don't want to disparage this approach, but it's probably too narrow. Why not understand where these systemic risks are coming from and design financial law to diversify around them? You're looking at the bigger picture and actually jumping over the effects rather than just trying to build as big and thick a wall as you can to protect the banks. Now, to illustrate this approach to drafting, let's look at ASEAN-oriented investment. Let's look at putting incentives in the financial law that encourages financial service firms to invest in the larger ASEAN region. Naturally, if our banks are diversified away from China, then the effect of a China-origin crisis would be much less and all of these four approaches that you see in front of you become less costly and less important to the, overall, uh, to the overall policy of protecting the financial services sector. Now, let's think about diversification toward the ASEAN region and the role of financial law in promoting that diversification. We know that the ASEAN region is becoming very wealthy very quickly as shown in figure 5.10. Of course, if Hong Kong as an international financial center can attract those funds, that will increase the depth and importance of our own market. Now how do we design a financial law which encourages financial services firms to go out and grab those assets while simultaneously diversifying away from the mainland? We show two examples in the slide of regulatory instruments, and you can read more about it in the paper. Uh, figure 5.14 uh, and 5.18 that shows uh, a possible memorandum of understanding and accompanying guidelines for foreign qualified regulation person scheme, whereby Hong Kong stockbrokers can solicit interest in Indonesia and Malaysia or Hong Kong bankers can ask for money in those countries. The second uh, figure or outline looks at Hong Kong-led ASEAN Capital Markets' forum initiative to think about an ASEAN Plus 3 investment passport. And the Europeans in the audience, or I guess Americans, will be immediately comfortable with this idea of an investment passport, Namely, that investments can be passported around the ASEAN region in the same way that they can be passported in the EU and the U.S., even though, of course, Americans don't call it a passport because it's it's one country. Um, so thinking about Hong Kong's role in developing this investment passport initiative to the extent that we can design laws and become the first mover that will encourage assets to come to the financial services sector here as well as diversify the economy. These basic two pieces of regulation are macro prudential regulation. It doesn't look like it at first glance, but think about what the regulation is actually doing. It is diversifying the asset base of Hong Kong's financial service firms away from the mainland which was the policy objective that we talked about in the last slide. Therefore, the, the goal of policymakers and regulators is to, to open your mind, if you will, or take this matrix-style view of financial law and look at the effect of regulation rather than simply narrowing the focus very much on what the regulation says purportedly doing. So, in this way, financial regulation is a bit like the game of Go. You cannot directly attack your adversary. You have to step back and think about how to surround them, looking at the board as a whole. That is the way to think about financial law. It's not to pass a, a very focused regulation uh, looking at basal uh, capital adequacy ratios, for example. It is to step back and think, well, how do we design financial law in a way to make the banking sector safer without perhaps creating some very costly buffering style regulations? Let's take a third case in order to really get our brains around this matrix style view of financial law. The third case refers to grabbing of going out mergers and acquisitions business. Naturally, you can read about this more in the paper, but the basic idea is that since 2000, uh, Chinese companies have gone on a spending spree buying foreign companies, particularly within the last five years. Now, we know that in many of these mergers and acquisitions deals, the advisor that the Chinese firm chooses or the target firm chooses in Mexico, South Africa, U.S., etc., The advisor they choose will not be based in their own jurisdiction or in China. They'll be based somewhere else, London, Paris, Frankfurt, uh, even Mauritius. And so the question is, well, what do we do as an international financial center in order to draw some of that business toward us, thereby increasing assets under management, increasing the depth and diversity of our financial center? Well, we know that the best way to build an international financial center, according to the data, is to develop world-class law firms and investment banks. It's those professional services firms that help provide the advice and ultimately encourage their customers to place funds with them or with allied firms. So by changing the financial law, we can actually affect our advisors' competitiveness and in the figure you see on the slide we show the probability of advisors in those jurisdictions getting uh, this going out business and what we see is that by affecting variables such as law school quality by affecting the richness the depth and complexity of the jurisdictions financial law that will affect the competitiveness of these professional services advisors thereby deepening the International Financial Center. So even though supposedly the objective of drafting financial law is to promote the stability, liquidity, safety of the the financial sector, in fact, by using financial law as a way to make our professional services firms more competitive, we help to protect our financial services sector. Naturally, having better law firms, more vigorous investment banks, that helps to create a highly diversified international financial center, such that even if a crisis came, we wouldn't only be relying on portfolio investment, which might disappear very quickly. Again, thinking about this matrix view of financial law, you don't want to look at lawyer self-regulation. You don't want to look at regulations just at law firm management. Instead, you want to step back with this go-game style mentality and think about how your financial law is actually affecting various aspects of your International Financial Center's competitiveness. Now, we talked a little bit about uh, compliance and the significant problems that compliance imposes on financial service firms of today. And we can think about the costs that this compliance regulations are imposing at two levels. We can think about the way countries, quote-unquote, comply with union, European Union, U.S., quote-unquote, union law, Hong Kong in its developing union with the mainland. And we can think about the way that financial services firms comply, among other laws, with local banking and securities acts. So, looking at the first level, uh, at the national level, we know that uh, increasing amounts of regulation are coming from international standard settings bodies and we know that that is imposing a certain amount of cost and we also know that some regulators are better than others. Compliance imposes different costs on different regulators. So, looking at the three figures you see at the top part of the slide, The first figure shows uh, the regulatory costs uh, per staff worker of financial law in various jurisdictions. What we see is that Hong Kong actually has the highest per head regulatory cost. Looking at the second figure, this is from regression analysis, showing the extent to which macro prudential regulators are over-under consolidated. So in other words, how many institutions deal with how many problems? What we see is that uh, Hong Kong is under-simplified. There's too many regulators, uh, again, speaking simply. Now, speaking unsimply, we see a diagrammatic representation of institutional arrangements between Hong Kong's main regulators, the Securities and Futures Commission, uh, HKMA, Hong Kong Monetary Authority, uh, the insurance regulator, and the Pensions Fund Authority. What we see is almost a spaghetti bowl of organizational relationships. Now, of course, this increases the costs, increases the potential risk to the economy of regulators not detecting a problem and solving it adequately. Now, thinking about compliance costs at the firm level, Those are the kinds of costs that you're probably more comfortable thinking about. These are the costs to banks, to uh, different representative offices of complying with new regulation, such as uh, money laundering regulation that you see in the figure uh, in front of you. Uh, We look at the costs of compliance in Hong Kong, and we see that those are some of the highest costs in the world and we look at the uh, extent to which uh, compliance costs distort the offer of services by financial services firms now we know that if regulation is radically distorting what customers want or what service firms are willing to give customers that's bad. Consumers should get what they want at a reasonable price if you believe in this Kotler approach to the market, which most policymakers and regulators do believe in uh, customer sovereignty. So, we see then that in uh, Hong Kong there's a significant distortion of what financial service firms are offering because it is costly to offer uh, deposits and therefore they are looking at offering other types of products. Now, how do we solve these cost problems, these compliance cost problems? How do we make it cheaper for regulators to regulate? And how do we make it cheaper for banks and broker-dealers to obey the local laws? So looking at the top part of the slide, we see some of the proposed regulations, in this case legislation and ordinance, uh, thinking about the redesign of Hong Kong's two ordinances, the Banking Ordinance and the Securities and Futures Ordinance, into a Twin Peaks regulator. So, by thinking about the cost and thinking about the overall problem, you then go and think, well, what is the optimal regulatory structure? And in that way, moving to Twin Peaks, moving to objectives-based regulation, rather than a more formalistic approach to regulation, we see that that will decrease the cost of compliance significantly at the regulatory side. Now, thinking about the cost of compliance at the uh, financial services side, uh, naturally there have been the developments of various uh, intermediaries that help financial service firms to comply with local regulation. And to the extent that an international financial center can create those types of intermediaries and make them so awesome that every bank wants to hire them, that will naturally increase the depth, the productivity, and the diversification of that international financial center. So thinking in the same way about uh, compliance with uh, regulations, to the extent that the government can create a body which actually helps banks comply, rather than simply imposes regulations on them, that would help promote not only uh, the banks and their productivity, but also the productivity of the regulators. So let's think about a, uh, a new organization, Financial Services Development Council, for example, in Hong Kong, which has the mandate of actually promoting the development of the financial services sector. Think of it as a kind of an anti-SFC. Think of it if the regulator is focused on risk and they're the brakes of the financial sector think of the financial services development council as the accelerator pedal to the banking sector and having an officially established body that's focused on promoting the banking sector that can only help promote the productivity of the entire banking sector so again using this matrix view of financial regulation you start with the end, well what do we want our banking sectors to look like at the end of the day? And then you step back and think, well how do we redesign regulation today to achieve that final end state? So what does this view mean for using regulation as a lever for developing an international financial center? Well we know that financial law determines the productivity of an international financial center. Now, one of the obvious recommendations is that second, third, fourth tier financial centers shouldn't just blindly rush out to adopt and comply with various types of standards. Now, we know that the road to mediocrity is paved with the passive adoption of standards. And if you don't believe me, look at the map in front of you. The map, uh, the blue map of the world in front of you shows the extent of similarity of the financial law of these jurisdictions. So, for example, looking at the complexity and the the quote-unquote richness of financial law of the U.S., Germany, France, China, they have very rich, vibrant financial law, and it's no wonder that they have some of the most vibrant financial centers. Of course, the proxy isn't perfect. We say Venezuela with a very complicated financial law, but certainly Caracas would be no international financial center as of this decade. So, looking at uh, similarity in the the lighter shades of blue, looking at uh, light blue of Turkey, Brazil, Argentina, or even looking at uh, within Europe itself, we see that European countries are rushing to standardize, to adopt, to gain these best practice regulations, but it's not helping them. I mean, slavishly copying regulations isn't going to make an international financial center. Instead, you notice that the most selfish countries, the most selfish regulators, are the ones leading the pack. It's the Americans who are always saying, "Well, we're going to set our own standards." It's always the Chinese they're saying, no, "No, no, we're going to do it the Chinese way." It's always those countries that turn out having some of the most vibrant financial centers. Now, regulation is a method of creating core competencies. And for those of you that aren't familiar with the idea of core competencies, it's from Prahalad Hamel's book. Uh, You'll see all these citations in the reading list at the end of the presentation. They say that the best way for companies to compete in a globalized world is to develop some unique skill set, some uncopyable, intangible thing, that makes customers happy and that cannot easily be copied. Now, companies don't just sit around all day and say, "Well, how do we do this?" Well, actually, they do sit around <laughs> and do this, but it's it's not their action alone which is going to push them to find that next great way of doing something better than anyone else can. Facebook, uh, they they promote social networking, social uh dialogue, social interaction, much more effectively than many of their other peers. Now why is that? It is because they had, they faced, a set of regulations that encouraged them to develop those core competencies. We don't see uh, Pakistani regulations, we don't see Algerian, we don't see Uruguayan regulations pushing companies to develop Facebook or YouTube style core competencies. If we want to look at the core competencies being developed in a jurisdiction, we have to step back and look at the financial law. Of course, it's not only the financial law. I'm not going to sit here and say it's uh, lawmaking that determines how productive General Motors or Toshiba is. But what I will stand up and say is that it is that financial law that helps determine the incentives for businessmen To develop those core competencies and to change them over time. And we saw that in the example of the Sunrise firms from our first case study uh, looking at the finance of solar panel companies in China. We saw that having a robust financial law which encourages the development of securities, securitization of assets and debts, and other products as a way of getting money to these companies, that will grow the International Financial Center. So, core competencies can also be used to solve other countries' problems. We saw in the second case study, we saw how financial law can help buffer a jurisdiction from financial shocks in other jurisdictions. In the same way, countries like Malta can use their financial law to buffer themselves against financial shocks coming from the EU. They can provide uh, specialized services to North African countries in order to buffer them from specific shocks, uh, oil shocks and other shocks which they face, and so forth. It is the financial law which gives Maltese firms the incentives to develop specialized types of insurance, for example, that they can then sell to Algerian Egyptian companies to help then offset oil price risks, just to take one example. Um, Looking at the third case study, and that is the case study of getting cross-border M&A business, it is the financial law that helps determine what kinds of professional services firms an international financial center has and how expensive it is for those lawyers, investment bankers, insurance providers, other types of professionals, how expensive it is for them to go out and offer their services abroad. In uh, one of the papers that you will see reference to at the end of the presentation, we show how financial law determines the cost of compliance But surprisingly, a complex financial law can actually encourage local compliance offerers to innovate, thereby driving down compliance costs and creating new products which can be sold to other countries. So it is the job of financial regulators to provide incentives to compliance intermediaries, to compliance departments, to lawyers, to investment bankers, in order to develop out the International Financial Center. Financial law is the way that we make these business arts, these MBA arts that we all learn when we're students. It's the way we actually empower them at the country level. So you're sitting here thinking, well, okay, all that theory is fine and good for Hong Kong or in general. How does it help Malta? And there's probably six conclusions that derive from our analysis which Maltese regulators and companies can use. The first... Is that the EU is your China. Just like I was talking about how Hong Kong can, uh, how financial law helps Hong Kong to compete for Chinese business or provide uh, finance for Sunrise Industries, in the same way, it's the role of Maltese financial law to provide new services which can be offered across the EU. Indeed, uh, there's a parallel between the two situations, because like Hong Kong is in a union with China, so is Malta with the EU. But simply belonging to a union, of course, isn't good enough, because as we saw, there's very different outcomes across the EU. There's very different outcomes uh, throughout the United States. So simply belonging to a union is not going to help, it's that mix of autonomy And integratedness, which is the key determinant, the key driver, for an international financial center. It's the fact that Hong Kong and Singapore had enough legislative autonomy in order to create their own custom-made solutions, which they could go and offer to the Chinese. It's that same reason why uh, Beijing, Shanghai, they have a certain amount of autonomy, as we see, you can read about in the paper, That may be several other cities in China do not have. These other cities are more constrained by Chinese law than the large cities, and therefore they haven't been able to develop their international financial centers. So it's a certain amount of autonomy among Maltese regulators that will help to make Malta an international financial center of the future. The goal should not be just to rush out and adopt everything from the EU and think, That is the way to become an international financial center. The second point is balancing sticks and carrots. What that means is that every time regulators draft a piece of regulation, they should think not only about the type of financial risk that that regulation is aimed at, but they should also think about what incentives does it provide to create the core competencies that we talked about previously. What incentives does a uh, crowdfunding regulation or and limitations on the sharing of information have on uh, promoting the development of uh, financial portals in Malta? Now, what's important is that when regulators are, are drafting this these regulations, it's very important to quantify the effect that this will have on uh, market development in related markets. I know this is hard and regulators particularly always complain about this, that well you can't quantify the impact of a regulation on a very complicated financial services firm, but it is the exercise of quantifying those impacts alone which focus the mind on the impact on uh, banks, on uh, the IT sector, on legal services. It is that's exercise of quantification which forces regulators to think oops I just wrote provision 42.6 paragraph C in this way but having in my mind thinking about the way it will impact on these lawyers why don't I change a couple of these words so you're always balancing the sticks of the regulation with the potential carrots that the impact of the regulation could offer on various sectors of the economy the third Uh, recommendation or implication is that regulators always need to add a motor as well as a brake. Uh, Regulators particularly in the last several years have focused so much on adopting Basel, on adopting the uh, alphabet soup of EU uh, laws that are coming out uh, affecting insurance, affecting banking, uh, affecting many of the brakes on financial services firms. And what regulators have to think about, and particularly policymakers, is well, what institution do we put in place to act as a motor? If we're always strengthening the brake side of financial regulation without developing a motor side, eventually you're going to have a financial services sector which is bogging down. So, what we see is that in New York, London, the most successful international financial centers have agencies specifically mandated to promote the development of the International Financial Center. Go out and help the banks win business and sit next to regulators and say, look, this regulation has to be amended this and that way because it's a, it's costing the banks X amount of money. And not only should these performance-based quote-unquote regulators exist, but they should also have performance targets. Um, in- indeed, and perhaps differentiating them from the financial services regulator itself. So it's no good to have a financial services development council working if they're not showing X amount of revenue every year or Y amount of positive social impact every every five years. It's that evaluation which determines their legitimacy. The fourth implication of this research is that law schools should be given as much money as you can give them. Now, that sounds very hyperbolic, and of course you don't want to give all possible money to a law school. But because law school funding is so restricted outside the U.S. and to a lesser extent the U.K., that's why I say just give them all the money you can because there's so many natural breaks built in to the budgetary process and to uh, programs which promote self-funding by law schools that you're you're going to want to throw as much money as you can at them. And the reason we make that recommendation is that law school rank and quality correlates strongly with uh, IFC rank. And there's several ways to think about why that's true. Better lawyers, of course, provide better deals to banks. Better lawyers make better regulators. Better lawyers provide better input into proposed rulemaking and so forth. Um, But the final implication stands is that better law schools tend to make for better IFCs. The fifth recommendation is that you want to decide on future industries and maximize the amount of assets under management which banks can grab from those future industries. So you want to tailor your financial law with a view toward developing those future industries, just like we saw in the case of the solar panel industry in China. But of course you don't just want to uh, remove all the laws and say, okay, go at it, banks. You want to maximize the risk-adjusted value of those assets under management. So you're always balancing the uh, increased amount of assets under management from a more relaxed securitization regime, and thinking about how to put safeguards in place which reduce potential systemic risks or risks to consumers that will wipe away the value of all those assets if there's a crisis. The sixth implication is that lobbying is not a dirty word. Since the financial crisis, lobbying has gotten a very nasty connotation. And Lobbying, it's it's a tool like any other tools. It can be used for good and it can be used for wrong what we see among the international financial centers is that the bigger, stronger, more developed international financial centers usually have more developed lobbyists. Lobbying is the way that financial service firms help regulators uh, make uh, welfare maximizing regulations. Now, of course regulators have to think about the welfare of the entire society and customer welfare particularly, But lobbying is an important aspect of the way regulators help banks to do their job. And, of course, consumer groups can lobby as well. On the other hand, banks will also want to promote their lobbying effort. Just as in we are suggesting that uh, regulators pay greater attention to lobbyists, we are particularly encouraging financial services firms to dedicate more a revenue, more resources to lobbying their host governments. Particularly in emerging markets, we see that there are international investment banks and law firms which could make a very positive impact on uh, the financial markets in which they work if they would only spend more resources educating lawmakers and helping regulators to design good laws. We know from a multitude of studies that the quality of law is one of the strongest predictors of a country's competitive advantage in a particular financial niche So, if you want your international financial center to grow and develop you have to make the quality of law work for your financial center make the quality of your financial law one of your comparative advantages thank you very much